Welcome to The Classical Corner, a new podcast brought to you by myself, Davina Clark, where I will delve into the secrets behind classical music and take you on a journey through some of the most inspired and beautiful works ever written. Throughout this series, I shall be joined by a selection of remarkable and talented musicians. Not only will we discuss our love for music, but I shall also discover the thoughts and processes behind my illustrious guests and what makes them the top of their game in the classical music field. So, come and join me in the Classical Corner. British soprano Mary Bevan is internationally renowned in Baroque, classical and contemporary repertoire and appears regularly with leading conductors, orchestras and ensembles around the world. She was winner of the Royal Philharmonic Society's Young Artist Award and UK Critics Circle Award for Exceptional Young Talent in Music. In 2019, she was awarded an MBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours List. On the concert platform, recent highlights include appearances with the BBC Symphony and Concert Orchestras at the Proms, several main roles at the Royal Opera House, and also her Carnegie Hall debut with the English Concert. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Mary to the Classical Corner today. Hello, Mary, and thank you so much for joining me. I'm really delighted to have you here in the Classical Corner today. Hi, Davina. Well, it's lovely to see you on FaceTime and speak to you after such a long time. Absolutely. Well, before we get started on some more musical discussions, I thought our listeners might like to know a little bit about you, perhaps how you and I know each other and how our paths have crossed so far in the musical world. Well, God, how long have we known each other? I'm going to guess at about eight years, something like that. In fact, I remember first hearing about you from my sister Sophie, who I think you worked with before you worked with me, and I remember her yes. her mentioning your name. And I was off to do a gig with, uh, must have been AAM or OAE or someone like that, and Sophie said, look out for Davina, she's a really sweet girl, she's got blonde hair, um, and she'll be really, really friendly. And then I did meet you, and I was like, I knew exactly who you were straight away, because you were the first <laughs> person <laughs> to come up and say hi, and you were super friendly, and we... I think we bonded over the fact that we love Sophie, my sister. And I've worked with you many, many times since. We've gone to different countries. We've done concerts here in the UK. Yeah, so we got on straight away and had some whiskeys at the bar together in various hotels. Sounds about right. (laughs) So you have sung many operatic roles for extremely distinguished companies, such as the Royal Opera House, English National Opera and the Royal Danish Opera, to name a few. Which would you say your favourite operatic role has been to play? Well, I think probably my my favourite role so far has been Orfeo in in Luigi Rossi's Orpheus in the Underworld, well, Orfeo, which is quite a rare rare opera, not really often done. Um, And we did it in English at the Globe for the Royal Opera House. This was about three years ago. Uh, No, no, sorry, it was about 2015, sorry. Um, And I played... Um, the man I played Orfeo, which is quite unusual for a soprano because normally you get the um, the mezzos get to play the men and yes. the sopranos play the love interest. And I'd already played Eurydice in a couple of productions as well. But getting to play Orfeo was so fun. And I sort of just, the makeup they did on me was incredible. They, they, they put a bit of um, brown eyeshadow just on my chin to make it look like I had that sort of John Travolta cleft in the chin and I kind of say it made me look so masculine just having that and I and I remember being very interested in that but also the the dramatic thing of playing a man was was so exciting and different to me um and it sort of made me sing differently as well if you can I don't know I wonder why that would be but I guess it's because men they sort of their bodies physically have a lower um core what would you call it a center of gravity um, and singing, I think good singing requires that low centre of gravity thing um, and feeling like you can stand with strong thighs and like a deep core. Um, so standing in inverted commas like a man and acting that role made me engage with the music in a slightly different way technically and I really loved that. And also it was a role which required me to cry, you know, sort of cry and be incredibly dramatic and um, you know, my lover died. It was just, it was, it was pure operatic drama. And that was just really fun. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, that I've done that opera 
not not that specific one but the Monteverdi one and it is it's gut-wrenching his part and you know very very emotional so it must have been really amazing to have played that part having played Eurydice previously really wonderful to see both sides see both sides of it yeah and actually I have to say when uh, the other role that springs to mind because I love doing comedy as well I, I really when I got something comic coming up I'm always get, get really excited and you know uh so that doing Despina at ENO with um in the new production that was twinned with the Met I think and it was all set in a fairground and Despina um dresses up as a cowboy sort of Elvis Presley wed um you know you know those Vegas people that dress up as Elvis and you get married yeah. she dresses up as one of those and dresses up as a as a crazy doctor with this huge white wig and a moustache. And at the end, I got to do a line dance with two little people. Um, they were the sort of, they were the fairground, um, part of the fairground troupe. And we had a fire breather and a sword swallower and a giant and these two little people who were a couple themselves. And we ended up doing a line dance. It was so much fun. I couldn't... Oh, my gosh. So they really hired a proper fairground... The whole shebang, yeah. The whole shebang. Yeah, and it's actually coming back to ENO, I believe, this year or next year. Um, I'm not doing Despina, but someone else will, and it's just such such a fun show. And and, and I was very lucky to have sort of created it. Um, that's that's incredible because at the Opera House, the Royal Opera House, you you have created some roles yourself. Um, Lila in David Bruce's The Firework Maker's Daughter. How how did you go about creating this new character, and what was involved in that? Well, um, a lot of rehearsal. Um, I remember being very worn out in that rehearsal um, period and actually I remember lying down on the floor on a lunch break just being sort of really physically tired because playing and I did the same I had also played an 11 year old a couple of years ago for the Royal Opera House as well um, and it takes a lot of energy when you are sort of 30 onwards to have that physicality of an 11 12 year old it's everything's about the body and you have to move all the time you know and I 11, 12-year-olds yeah. never stop moving, do they? Um, I just remember the rehearsal process being very... I, I never sat down once. and But in terms of the drama and creating the character, I was led by the music, and I almost always am led by the music. And the director and I, the director of that one was John Fulljames, who I've now worked with a few times at the Royal Danish. Mm. He's wonderful. He's very, very good at letting me play. So when I say that, I mean improvise on the day um, and I play improvise and then I say to him is that what you want and he tells me what he wants me to keep and what I should let go of or what's something something I should do differently and so we have a very collaborative um, rehearsal way of, way of rehearsing John and I um, and the same with the role of Coraline which was the one two years ago where I had to play this 11 year old but the stories were very clear in those operas they are based on novels, um, obviously Philip Pullman's novel, The Firemaker's Daughter, had to be condensed quite a lot to be put into an opera. So yeah. it meant that each scene was was very clear what was happening. And there wasn't actually that much mm. for me to do in terms of the character. I just had to keep everything moving physically and just make sure I knew the music backwards before starting the rehearsal period. So there was no slowing down for any of that stuff. Well, you and I have performed so many times together with ensembles like the Academy of Ancient Music and OAE, all of which obviously are groups which specialise in early music. And I know, like me, you're a really a lover and specialist in Baroque music. So for our listeners, what would you say the differences are in performing Baroque music as opposed to classical or romantic, either in the roles that you play or in the actual music itself? Because obviously you've got ornamentation to think about, which you can really... Uh, personalise and your interpretation you can make it very original and unique so how do you go about doing that? Exactly I, I think Baroque music used to have this reputation of being the sort of poorer younger sibling of your classical and romantic repertoire but these days it's it's the opposite and if anything you have more opportunity with this music to create your own personal stamp and even as you say write your own versions of things with the ornamentation that you do personally I find the characters incredibly rich in the baroque music in the baroque repertoire and, and quite a lot of my singing and performance is driven by character 
and what I believe is going on in that character's life. Um, and that will sort of drive the ornamentation and drive the way I sing things. In terms of how it is to actually perform, I find the collaborativeness of Baroque music to be the reason why I love it so much. I mean, the fact that you and I are sitting here together doing this and that we're friends is just shows that the connection that a singer can have with a Baroque group can be very personal and, and it's more of a chamber group. You know, as a singer, you're not necessarily the soloist with your Absolutely. backing group behind you. You know, it's, it's much more like chamber work. All of you have an equal part to play. Whereas when you're doing a concert with, let's say, Mozart Requiem or, you know, Beethoven 9 or whatever, like, something like that, you can often end up turning up, standing at the front, saying a brief hello to, you know, the leader and the conductor and going home and not getting yeah. to know anyone in the group. And mm. I find that a bit sad. Um, and so I'm in that way, I, I love when I get an email saying, you've got five days work with the AAM or OAE or, you know, English concert, because I know I'm going to have a really great time and I'm going to find the music making inspiring as well as seeing my friends and all that absolutely and I think that you know certainly for us as in the band as musicians or as players we get a huge amount of um we really bounce off each other I think as the soloist and the instrumentalist especially with ornamentation ideas being spontaneous and I think having the relationship certainly friendship between us all uh, provides this huge level of trust and a wonderful just a wonderful environment to work in where you really feel like anything's possible yeah totally there's not much room for ego as well so everyone's everyone's just really nice yeah and they get on and exciting things can happen you're not restrained by um having to play something in a certain way there's a certain freedom to it for everyone um obviously if you're the leader and you're you have more freedom to ornament or if you're the soloist. Um, but it's also a high pressure thing because there is more of a, of a, um, there is more, sorry, I have to, I'm just trying to think of the right word. Um, when you're doing Baroque stuff, the lead up to it in the sort of preparation when you're at home sometimes it can be a tad more stressful because you know, okay, well, I've got to rock up with a good set of ornaments. And yeah. we, Sophie, my sister and I, you know, we, we've a few times in the past said to each other, oh God, I've got to do this. Oh, I've got to write ornaments. So what do you do for that? And you've, you feel a pressure to be original and make something exciting, but without you know, a lot of us aren't actually trained in ornamentation, so... Exactly, it's not that language that's actually inbuilt within us, especially if, you know, as a musician, you're already doing lots of other genres, you've come from doing a Puccini opera, and suddenly you're coming to do, I don't know, a Handel oratorio, and you're doing these crazy arias where you're suddenly expected to have this musical language where you've just come up with ornaments like their sentences. Yeah, exactly, and then sometimes you may end up, you know, writing quite a good set, and you think, oh, I've done well here. And then you turn up with a new conductor and the conductor's like, um, sorry, that, I don't like that. Oh, I'm not into big ornamentation, so please can you get rid of it? And you're like, oh, this is three weeks' work. <laughs> um, so, but, I don't know, I guess for that reason, it's just, it's a, the challenge is, is what I constantly strive to. I love the challenge of all this sorts of music and, I don't know, it's just, it's fun, isn't it? It's fun, exciting, spontaneous, and that's certainly why... I love it. And I think, you know, taking it to a new level in concerts or in recordings and really, you know, flying by the seat of your pants in yeah. things and bouncing off each other is just so amazing. What would you say the hardest or kind of craziest aria is that you've ever sung in the Baroque genre? It's funny you should ask that considering the track that you've chosen. <laughs> <laughs> that aria, Un Pensiero as I say, un pensiero nemico di pace. I can't even say it in Italian. Like, and it is so much harder to sing. But um, that recording that, that you're going to play, uh, that was the first time I'd ever heard of that aria and the first time I sang it. And that was back in 2015. Um, and then I did the opera that that comes from a couple of years right. ago at Royal Danish, the Il Trionfo. 
And it got, um, sadly, it got harder and harder. It wasn't one of those ones where I thought, um, oh God, yeah, it's in my voice now. I could just rattle it off. It is a very difficult aria. I think it's because it's mid, mid-range mid vocally. It's quite quite low. And when it came to staging it on um, on the Danish uh, opera that I did, uh, I had to... There was a... What was it? Um, we were sort of walking across the stage in slow motion and there was a conveyor belt thing and I had to walk across that and I had to suddenly be really angry and grab the guy and then... And had to work out then how to stand still and then sing this really hard run. And oh, and, and every night I just thought... Without falling off the treadmill? Well, luckily I walked. It was going very slowly at that point. I'd said to them, can you please slow it down so I don't you know, have the next thing to worry about? Um, but every night when it was over, I'd finally sort of relax and enjoy the rest of the show. Yeah. Once that was done. But it, Absolutely. It's incredibly hard. I mean, yeah. Lots of notes. I mean... Definitely. So what Mary's talking about is um, from Handel's Oratorio, The Triumph of Time and Disillusionment, and it's called Un Pensiero Nemico di Pace. And so it's got these two amazing contrasting sections, doesn't it? It's got the really fast bit, and then it goes into this completely dreamy middle B section, which is very serene. I think the plot um, of the opera, you can probably explain this better than me, but there are three characters, aren't there? There's beauty, pleasure, of four, beauty, pleasure, time, and disillusionment. And they're all trying to persuade one another to do different things, aren't they? So I think this comes at a part in the oratory where beauty is angry with uh, time. Something like that. Yeah, so they're all focused on beauty. Beauty is a sort of main girl, and pleasure is trying to persuade beauty to relinquish um, goodness and um you know, and not bother being a good person. Just think about beauty in the present and the fun that she could have and, you know, the amazing things that pleasure can offer her in her, in her pleasure's palace. And time and um, truth, uh, or il- what, what did you say? You said... Disillusionment, but it is time and truth, yeah. Yeah, it, it, they have diff- different translations for it. But um, they come along and they're the sort of... Um, the voice of reason and sense and they say you know one day you will lose your beauty and then what will you have your soul will be the only thing that remains of you because your your body will die so you better make sure that your soul's good and i.e better make sure you're a good person and yeah beauty sings this um as a sort of reaction to them sort of leave me alone i don't need to, i don't need to hear this from you yeah absolutely well here is mary performing un pensiero nemico di pace from handel's oratorio il trionfo del tempo e del disingano Fece tempo per l'umilità, 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 fece t
Mary, you and I toured and performed together a few years ago in Bogota in Colombia, a fly-in, fly-out expedition, and you had to sing the most ridiculously high-octane handle arias. The air quality was terrible. Um, there was high altitude, jet lag. I mean, I felt like I was going to pass out the whole time. How did you get through it? And are there any specific techniques that you use to help yourself in situations like this? Well, in that particular situation, I'd heard Everyone was talking about this whole thing about the high altitude. And I think we all went off, didn't we, on a big walk up. Um, we went up a funicular railway to a big church on the top of a sort of mountain, didn't we? We did. It was very, very high. And that that just happened to be something that was going on. And I said yes to going and we went. And um, only afterwards did I realise that apparently it was exactly the right thing to have done, to have acclimatised to the altitude. Right. So that was, that probably helped, I would have thought. Uh, but otherwise there wasn't much I could do. I remember in the performance there being a moment where I felt like I was going to faint. But I got through it. Um, I can't remember when it was, but it was definitely during a slightly difficult aria. But And I've had that feeling a couple of times before. And do you know what? At the time, I didn't think it had anything to do with the altitude. I thought it was just that my mind was playing a trick on me. So... Yeah, because yeah. it's happened before in that way. The only way I can get through that brief moment, and I think it lasted about five seconds, where your brain panics and you think, "Yeah, I'm going to pass out." And quite often, I think with people who do faint a lot, that actually does happen. That thought leads to a faint. But I've never ever fainted in my whole life, and I think that helps me because it means <laughs> that I think, "Okay, well, why would now be the first time?" Luckily, I didn't think about the altitude because if I had, maybe I actually would have gone tumbling down but um what I tend to do is try and distract myself from it a bit like with a child having a tantrum I remember this with my own child the best thing to do instead of indulging the tantrum is just to immediately distract them with something else something completely different and go yeah look at this toy or look at that thing that's out the window or look at that bird and and I sort of play the same tricks on my own brain when I get into those situations a few times they've happened and I think at that time in Bogota, I just started thinking about what the character was meant to be saying in this point in the music. And lo and behold, I was absolutely fine about three seconds later. Yeah, absolutely. So you must have done so many incredible concerts over the last few years. I know for me, the success of a concert is dependent on so many factors like location, tiredness, feeling well, how the audience responds, the space the weather, all of these things kind of really, if they all aligned, they sort of make the perfect pack, pass, package, don't they? But um, which are the few concerts that have really jumped out at you for being unique in some way? Well, a recent one that stood out has been um, a concert that came in rather late, so about two weeks before, and it was in lockdown. So it was in the second lockdown, and I was asked um, to go and do Les Illuminations with the CBSO. Um, mm -hmm. It's not online anymore, but it, it was put out live um, for a month. And that was really special because I hadn't sung for ages and it just felt like suddenly I got the chance to, to sing this piece that I really love. Like I have such, um, I don't know, I have, I have passion for that particular piece. And I don't know why, I think it's probably because it was one of the first ones I ever sang in my career. Um, so it's, it's a Britain uh, set of songs, lasts about 15 minutes and they're crazy poems and the music is just so inventive and glorious. And singing that with that amazing orchestra, it was sort of, it was incredibly difficult in a way because I hadn't performed in so long. But it was also this amazing challenge and also quite poignant because there was obviously no one there. 
Mm. Um, and it was being filmed. So the only audience I had were those cameras. So that was quite special. Um, other concerts that stick in my mind, a lot of them are with, um, with the early music groups. So we did a tour of Ariadante. Again, I was a last minute step in for that. So I played the role of Delinda, which I'd never played before. And I got a call and rehearsal started three days later or something. Joyce Didonato playing, um, playing Ariadante in the American leg and then Alice Coote playing it in the Europe leg Amazing. of the tour. It, it was, I mean, just standing there watching those two sort of titans of the operatic, especially yeah. the Baroque world, watching them weave magic like that over the audience and over the orchestra. It was absolutely incredible. And I feel like I learned so much from them as a singer, but also as a, as a concert performer, because what they did with that music was they made it entirely their own. And they're two very different singers yeah. and they did the same role. Yeah. But there was no doubt in either of their heads of their own performance. There was just no insecurity but yet they were vulnerable. And I just mm -hmm. watched that and thought, that is what audiences want to see. They don't actually want to see a level of perfection that makes you sit back in your seat and go, ah, well, this concert's going to go really well. They, they literally made you sit on the edge of your seat and made you think, well, is this, what's going to happen? What's actually going to happen in this aria? And I think since then, I've taken way more risks vocally and with my performances and I think that I've seen a difference in the way that audiences connect with you when you perform that way. So that that really was a highlight of my career, actually, watching those two sing Ariadante. Um, yeah. And apart from that, the Bogota concert was, was brilliant. I loved that one. It, it was pretty amazing, actually, wasn't it? Wow, that's, that sounds incredible. So moving on to some recordings of yours, I'm completely in love with one of your latest discs, The Divine Muse, which you recorded with Joe Middleton, and that was released last year. The recording takes music by Wolf, Schubert and Haydn and shows how themselves and their writing was influenced by themes found in divinity and mythology. They're certainly three very different composers. So how did you come up with this amazing comparison? Well, this was actually... Um an idea of Joe's because we work together a lot and he is constantly thinking of new things. And um, yeah. this, the, the inspiration behind this came from the poems rather than the composers, if you like. So mm -hmm. he, he has always found it quite funny that I studied Anglo-Saxon, Norse and Celtic at Cambridge, <laughs> which is a really unusual subject choice for anyone, I guess, but particularly me considering I haven't done, really done anything with it. But, um, one of the things that, that the disc focuses on is, um, as you say, the divine and the mytho mythological and how those two things inspired composers. And then, though uh, I guess we sat together, he'd already thought of some core pieces of music, and that would be the Haydn, the Ariana Anaxos, which is the, um, the long sort of um, four-part Shana, if you like, um, it's quite operatic and that sits in the middle of the disc as a sort of main course of the disc. And then we started thinking about texts that were also based in the mythological and it, it came up that Schubert had written rather a lot in that, in that way. And also he'd written quite a lot in the way of divine, so religious texts. Um, I say rather a lot, I think it's just a couple actually on the disc. Um, and then I love singing Wolf. Wolf was one of my favourite songs. Wolf is one of my favourite song composers. And he, although not a particularly religious man, wrote some absolutely amazing songs based on religious poems mm. by Murica. And we sat together in his house and listened to them. And I fell in love with those songs and on the spot, basically. And that's quite often how I choose music for those quite personalised recital discs. For me, the poetry has to speak to me. But then if I listen to the music and it has an immediate effect then it tends to be something that gets put in the put in the program and that's how we did it we cobbled it together from loving the music and loving the poetry and that that's how that disc got created um yeah 
Oh, well, it's a totally beautiful disc and I've got, well, many favourites, but the works which actually really did capture my heart are the Murica Leader by Wolf. I mean, they're just sublime. So for listeners who haven't discovered these yet, uh, Murica Leader are a set of 53 songs, all written by Wolf over a few months in 1888 using Edward Murica's poetry. And he was an author of fairy tales and poetic ideals, I think, who was a huge influence to Wolf. Um, and number 23 on the disc is called To an Old Picture, which is just incredible. There's this combination of the text and the harmony makes one feel sort of comforted, yet uneasy at the same time. It's just this delightful juxtaposition that just works so beautifully. It's mesmerising. Yeah, and apparently is actually based on the the feeling that he got when he looked at this old picture. And, and the picture was of Jesus with its Jesus with his head in in Mary's lap, and the forest behind, and the idea being that there's this wonderful family scene playing out of the, the loving mother and her sweet son, and then in the background you see the wood that will eventually make the cross on which Jesus dies. So you're right; it has that feeling of unease, and um, because there is that darkness behind the happy picture. Absolutely. And I mean, the text does display that it's sort of saying summer haze, green landscape, rushes, water. But then it is talking of the woodland behind, which will eventually, yeah, be his cross. So that is, it's pretty monumental. Um, As a contrast to that, number 27 from the songs is called To the New Year. And that is just so charming. It's written very sort of high up in the register on the piano, isn't it? And it's, it feels very sort of celestial and bell-like angels and it's quite Christmassy isn't it? Very Christmassy and I mean does that have did you place that um, at a specific place in the disc all of those to do with some kind of divine reason or? Um, I wish I could say that we we did but no it was more that we felt that that the themes of the disc were in danger of getting a bit dark and sad and that does tend to be the case a lot, a lot with Leader that you can yeah. you can get sort of bogged down because the inspiring emotions of humanity tend to be the dark side of love and the dark side of life and death and all those things that that make you feel a lot. Yeah. And you can you can end up with a CD or with a recital program of th- things that make everyone cry all the time. So um, we decided to pop that in there as a sort of uplifting moment. Um, towards the end of the disc of you know don't worry I mean you know we're, we're all it's a happy thing that God is there looking after us and the angels you know it's, it's it was meant to be sort of light moment definitely I mean you re- that really comes across in the recording it feels light and joyful and quite almost sort of sets a Dickensian scene doesn't it quite Christmas carol-y I gotta tell um, you it was actually higher the original key is actually higher than that I think it goes up to a top B or B flat and I just said to Joe that's not gonna happen it sounded awful I was gonna go <laughs> so we put it down and even at the key we put it down to it's still really sort of high and bright and um you sort of feel like it was written for a young boy to sing or something so yeah I cheated on that one Well, it still sounds absolutely gorgeous. So here's Mary performing Wolf's To an Old Picture and also To the New Year from her latest CD, The Divine Muse.
staying on the subject of your recordings, I would love to talk about your beautiful Vaughan Williams disc, which you recorded with Nicky Spence, Roddy Williams, William Van, and violinist Jack Liebeck. What an amazing collaboration of instrumentalists to work with. Well, again, this was a very lucky um, lockdown project that I was incredibly grateful for at the time, not, not just for you know the fact that it was work, but also that I got to see those lovely people. And um, I'm very good friends with all of them. So we had a really nice three days in Henrywood Hall in London and recorded these amazing songs. And, and this was like the second or third, I think, in a series of discs I've done for the Bourne Williams Society. They're very, they're an amazing society. They, they um, are always trying to look for opportunities to record previously unknown and unrecorded music, such as um, the ones that you'll find on, on all of these discs. I think there are four volumes in all, and I think volume three and four uh, haven't been released yet, but one and two have just come out. Quite, it was quite a quick turnover. Um, and yeah, this particular song is my favourite of all of them. To sing, to perform, to hear, yeah, it's wonderful. Definitely. Well, How Cold the Wind Doth Blow, the song that you're talking about, is from his set called From Sussex and the writing is just so beautiful when I'm listening I can see the rolling hills it's like a constable painting isn't it it just paints this amazing picture and then when the violin obligato comes in for verse two and then of course the tenor line it is just so glorious yeah what is the song actually about um well the the idea is I think this other name is the unquiet grave so it's it's about a woman standing at the grave of her her dead lover and saying i want to kiss you one more time and he's you hear the, his voice saying if you do that you too will die and she says basically i don't care i'll do anything to be with you again and so you get the two voices of these two characters and then you get the violin which i've always saw as well as being the soul of 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 the dead lover um and this yeah i actually recorded the song twice the first time was done on another disc called purer than pearl with the same um with the same born william society and that was just me and a violinist thomas gould and when it's just one singer and just just one violinist then it is a sort of duet between the character of the woman and the soul and it drifting around her oh it, Vaughan Williams is so good with violin. I mean, he just does these amazing violin solos and it's just, you should play it, Davina. Um, and the hauntingness of that melody. Yeah. And it happens, like the, the verse repeats, what, six times? By the end, you want to hear it all again, even though it's been repeated. I don't know, it's just such a beautiful tune. It's completely mesmerising. Absolutely beautiful. And there's that moment when when the tenor comes, so Nicky Spence on this CD, uh, when he then comes in after you, you, you are sitting by the grave and then he sort of, he's the ghost then speaking back to his lover. Yeah. It, and then the violin just comes in on the top soaring. It's, yeah. Uh, it's, it's pretty sublime, actually. It is. And I'm so glad it's out now in the open and being, hopefully, other people perform it because to think a song like that, just sitting in a dusty... Um, you know, library somewhere not being sung. It's tragic. It's so beautiful. Well, here is Mary singing How Cold the Wind Doth Blow by Vaughan Williams. Oh. 
Another disc focusing on this is your Time and Space CD, which you recorded with the same team, but this time incorporating Holst too. And I was listening and discovered so many gems, such as Soft and Gentle, from his four songs, Opus 4. That song really spoke to me as well, so I'm glad that you went for that one. Um, Holst, I've never really sung much of his stuff, and I have to point out that on that disc there's also some... um, quite incredible unaccompanied songs for violin and voice which are sort of religious religious based um prayers and they are so amazing um again we should perform them together um so this song soft and gentle really spoke to me it's got such a lovely lilting piano part and it's this little lullaby um and it's just about the love of a mother that's how i see it anyway and actually, I sang this one other time. I sang it last year, about two days after my sister had given birth to her right. little boy. And I sang it in this little church somewhere, a very cold church. And I'd chosen it because I wanted to sing some, some lullabies that day because I knew that Sophie was due around that time. And I just sort of got a lump in my throat singing them. They're so pretty and simple and just loving. Um, so... I, I really feel with songs like that as well, they're a really good introduction to people who don't necessarily know English song. Yes, and everything on the disc is really quite short, all of all of these ones. And the I will put in the Spotify playlist for today's episode, I will put some of the other ones, the unaccompanied, well, no piano, but just violin and voice, because they are so charming. And also take you right back to kind of 
real folk music. The Holst ones with violin are the prayers and they take you back to sort of medieval music crossed with folk um, and prayers. And they're just amazing. They're completely beautiful, so I think we should share it with you all. Here is Holst's Soft and Gentle from his Four Songs, Opus 4. Soft and gently through my soul Sweetest I'd love to touch on your French disc, Voyage, which you recorded once again with Joe Middleton. Is there a theme behind the CD other than it being French? Because, I mean, there's so much glorious French music to choose from. How did you manage to narrow it down to such a lovely selection that also contained such variety? Well, um, yes, there is a theme. And the, the name of the disc, Voyage, sort of alludes to the journey that the imagination takes through these poems. And I think there's a quote on the front of the disc uh, off the top of my head. It's a Baudelaire quote, and it's something like, um, imagination is the queen of the faculties. Right. So that you can, you can have your normal human state, but your imagination can take you anywhere you want it to go. And that's the wonderful thing about French repertoire that I love. You, you, you know, you get your German songs, which are all sort of based in reality and human experience and love and those things and springtime and all the themes that come out in German poetry. Yeah. And then you go into French and suddenly you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're talking about or, or where you are. It's just all feelings and smells and memories. and um, It's like stepping into a painting, isn't it? Totally. You're just awash with all this colour. and it, It's just, it can take you to weird places. And some of the poems, well, Baudelaire became the, I guess, the main thread, um, the main poet on that disc. And his Debussy Baudelaire settings, sorry, the Debussy settings of the Baudelaire poems are a really good example of how the poems and the music are sort of enmeshed. And they don't make sense unless you know them really well and you you get into it. And I, even those Baudelaire poems now, I... I read them and I think, what? What is going on? But quite a lot of the time, I guess, they are talking about things like sex. A lot of that, a lot of them are very sort of sexual and um, a lot of them are about death and strange half-covered, misty subjects that you don't understand probably ever. I think you're probably not meant to understand them as a listener or as a performer. I think that's the whole intrigue of it. And I mean, when I am listening to all of those, I do feel, you know, that bit in Mary Poppins where they jump into the picture. Yeah. I feel like we've gone into there, but then we sort of take a weird route. Yeah. And you're discovering all these strange things. And you can really hear, um, certainly in the piano writing, it's all the harmonies and everything and how it links with the text um, yeah. but not just in the meaning of the text but actually with the enunciation of the text the actual diction and the sound um it's kind of mes it's intoxicating it totally is and you can sort of imagine them all smoking opium in their turrets in paris um and then 
just playing the piano in these underground bars and you know all the I just it's so evocative that's what it is definitely Uh, one of my favorites from the disc is called The Fountain which is another which is a Baudelaire song Um, I'd never heard of of Baudelaire before but you know the text is beautiful and Debussy sets it really perfectly with the writing I know you said that all the songs are about we don't really know what they're about but could you tell us a little bit about this song it's certainly kind of metaphorical and spiritual with sort of how the fountain but also the soul is sort of depicted yeah oh it's hard to explain it but I've always thought of this song especially especially at the beginning when the singer talks about um the sort of heavy air and the fountain in the middle of the courtyard and the half closed eyes I think if I'm thinking the right one I think this one is quite a quite a lot about um sex basically and that feeling of heaviness in the body and, you know, being half awake, that half moment where you think you could be dead, you could be alive, you're not sure. But then the, the chorus comes back again and again, um, that repetitive verse, which has an amazing effect of sounding different each time. But it is exactly the same music and exactly mm-hmm. the same words comes back. Um, I guess it just plays with your mind. Yeah, exactly. Just you're you're just lost in your own thoughts and your memories, um, and it's I guess the fountain is a good metaphor for that because it constantly moves with this. The, the water is heavy yet light. It's mm-hmm. it's a the a fountain sort of carries on without anyone else being there. It's like a vet- metaphor for life in all regards. I don't know. Makes my head feel woo thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's Mary's recording of Debussy's Le Jet d'Or from her disc Voyage.
recordings we've discussed today can be found on the Spotify playlist for today's episode of The Classical Corner. I would also like to express my huge gratitude to Signum and Albion Records, who have very kindly let us indulge ourselves with their beautiful recordings today. So thank you very much, Signum and Albion Records. Talking of things other than the podcast, Mary and I are hoping to embark on a very exciting project together, which is to record Handel's nine German arias, which are a fantastic set of Handel songs. We're looking to raise a little bit of money at the moment to make this happen, so if you or anybody that you know would like to donate, then please do support this project and please get in touch with me via my website, which is davinaclark.com. We would be so grateful and it'd be wonderful to record these absolutely sublime works. Well, Mary, it's been an utter joy and delight to have you in the Classical Corner today. What a pleasure to share so many musical memories and adventures with you and to hear you sing so beautifully too. Thank you. And I really hope we'll be performing together once again on the concert platform very soon. Thank you, Davina. It's been lovely talking to you and I hope your listeners get something out of this today. I'm sure they will. It's all sublime. Thank you all so much for joining me for another episode of The Classical Corner. I hope you'll tune in next time when we shall continue to explore some more glorious music together. In the meantime, I wish you all a wonderful week. Goodbye. <laughs>